Welcome to the Learning with Lowell podcast. I am Lowell Thompson and my lifelong love of learning saved my life. A few years ago, I was in and out of the ER and ICU with no end in sight due to, at the time, a mysterious illness. I read medical journals, talked to scientists and researchers, and learned how to develop a good treatment plan, all of which put me on the path to becoming healthy, which I am now. I have met the team responsible for creating the drug that saved my life, and now I am taking my experiences and love of learning and translating them into interviews with experts, CEOs, and scientists in order to achieve three goals in hopefully every episode, to have fun and interesting conversations that are enjoyable to listen to, to learn what these people are developing and creating, to hear what their tactics, strategies, tools, books, and resources they use to accomplish what they were doing so that you can help navigate your career to help build the startup that you want to build. The best way to help out is to subscribe. Check out the learnwithlowell.com website where you'll have show notes, hyperlinked notes so you can click around in the audio. Every term that we talk about in the episodes go into those notes and they're clickable. There'll be links to everything in the show notes at learnwithlowell.com. The best thing you can do is to sign up to the weekly content letter that I put out. It comes out every week. It is fantastic. It comes from the interviews with guests. It comes from me just reading a lot on the on the internet. You'll have book recommendations, video, articles, things to help you progress in your careers, things to help you develop your startup, things to that are just fun and entertaining to listen and watch. You'll have all that every week. So definitely sign that up, check it out, and tell all your friends about it. That's the best thing you can do to help. Today we are joined by Dr. Moody, CEO of iCore Therapeutics. iCore Therapeutics is a portfolio company spanning enzyme therapy, Lysoclear Inc., Senolytics, Fox Bio Inc., Small Molecule Drug Discovery, Entoxerine Inc., Antibody Mimitex, Octus Biology, Protein Chemistry Tools, Recombin Pure, and Contact Research Services and strategic investment. Basically, iCore Therapeutics does a lot of stuff. In this episode, we're going to focus on their work on longevity, anti-aging, that type of, of uh, technology and research. We get a little bit about them. This is another one of those short episodes, kind of experimenting with that a little bit. This episode will be nice and tight, nice and short, and you'll get a sense of Dr. Moody, his work, his research, and a little bit about longevity at the same time. I was reading through your news, like I said, and I've been talking with other people and it seems like 20 years ago we wouldn't be having these developments so I'm, I'm really curious like what is what is about today you know and you know several years ago when you started that made iCore possible that just wouldn't be any in any other time um, from an R&D perspective, um, I think that there's been a lot of work around target validation with respect to mechanisms of aging. One of the biggest problems in any sort of drug discovery path is, is the target that I'm going after, whether it's a particular protein-protein interaction or the aggregation of something or an accumulation of something, is that the thing that is actually causing the disease, the pathology, the whatever? Um, and historically, that really hasn't been known and the, the targets haven't been very well confirmed in the context of you know, pathways uh, of aging. And that's changed in uh, a very significant way. There's lots of different types of damage and, and accumulations that we see, whether they're misfolded proteins or lipofuscin throughout the body or... Um, 
you know, senescent cells, these sorts of things. So that really creates a situation where pharmaceutical companies can begin developing products that can go after those targets with some um, some indication that those targets are the right things to be going after. So, so in terms of the aging field broadly, I think that target validation is the major difference between where we are now and where we were maybe 20 years ago. Uh, from ICOR's perspective specifically, it actually boils down to uh, used equipment markets. So when I started off the company, of course, we're uh, about 13,000 square feet and moving, uh, increasing to about 34 full-time employees right now. But when I started the company, it was in my uh, living room in my medical school apartment. And I was able to purchase um, really a full cell culture lab, including uh, the construction of a small vivarium to house uh, laboratory mice um, in, in that location because of the abundance of used basic equipment on the secondary markets, flow hoods, incubators, pipetters, basic equipment that's necessary for any lab to function. Historically, that hasn't been the case either. We've uh, Entrepreneurs in the life sciences have been forced to rely on larger companies or uh, academic institutions for access to basic infrastructure. So I think that for, for I-Corps proper, having access to affordable infrastructure in the form of used equipment was really essential for the company taking off. But then the field itself, it really comes down, I think, to, to target validation and having some semblance of an idea of what things uh, we can go after to, to try to start drugging aging pathways. That, that was something I was kind of surprised by, like the idea that you kind of started it in your, in your college dorm room. It, it led me to like, uh, to this question and maybe this one might be like for the other, like in depth one, but I was curious when I was looking at the i job section, cause I always like, I'll include those in the show notes so people can be like, Oh sweet. I like this guy. Let's go check him out or what he's working on. But I noticed that a lot of them were like PhD requirements, but since you didn't, you don't have an advanced degree because you, you know, stopped to build this. Like why, why have that as a requirement when you know that like hard work and like a really, like really driven person like yourself can like build something and like what you've done. Yeah. So I, I, I think the question is uh, why do I require PhDs for certain uh, job opportunities when I myself don't have one. Surely yeah. someone without a PhD could contribute to the field and to our research in a very meaningful way. Um, and I think that that's very true and that's a very astute observation. Um, usually when we're hiring for PhD positions, we're looking for very specific skill sets. So my role at the company is really is more of a generalist. Um, I hold an MBA, so I'm comfortable doing uh, you know finance and budgeting and uh, business documentation and that sort of thing. I've been plugged in with legal for a long time, although I've never had actual training in that, but I'm very comfortable with your run-of-the-mill incorporation documents, board resolutions, patent applications, transactional documents. Um, I went to medical school for two years, so I'm comfortable with many clinical aspects of doing a drug discovery initiative, and I am actually defending uh, shortly a PhD in biochemistry, so I will have a PhD uh, based around our work on macular degeneration. So my role is really as a generalist to connect these different groups that speak very different languages. Clinicians speak different languages than researchers, speak different than business people, speak different than attorneys. So I'm a global translator. Most of the jobs that we're hiring for are very technical jobs 
where we're looking for someone who has spent the last eight years studying just this one very, very specific nuanced thing. They have a very particular skill set that serves a very important need that the company has. Um, so in that case, uh, to think of it as vocational wouldn't be quite accurate, but uh, to think of it as uh Many of these positions are highly specialized, and the best way to find highly specialized people is to look for someone who has earned a PhD in exactly that thing. When it comes to evaluating uh, companies that we might invest in through our strategic investment fund, um, certainly a PhD or an MD is not a requirement, and uh, we wouldn't be discouraged from investing or partnering or otherwise working with groups where the leadership doesn't have those credentials. Are you familiar with Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton? But there's a musical that came out recently, but uh, from someone that's in the New York area, I was just curious because you, you seem sound. I, I've read a number of biographies on him. You sound kind of familiar to, like, very similar, like a parallel. I mean, I hope you're better with people, but <laughs> but uh, <laughs> like a, in the self. Uh, I've heard I've heard the name, but I actually know nothing about him. Oh, I'll rec- I'll I'll send you a book about him later um, if you if you have time. Though I don't I don't know how you have time. You, you you seem extremely busy. One of the questions that you kind of answered, but at the same time, I'd love to you know post to you see if there is any more to it. But I was when when I was reading about what you've built, it it said that you raised like something like twenty million or around there. You know what you know what have you? But from the other startups that I've talked with that are developing therapeutics, they make it sound like like that just be a drop in the bucket. And yet you found a way to develop several things at the same time. And so I'm I'm curious as and you kind of alluded to this answer that things are just a little cheaper and you've been able to like uh, effectively manage buying things like secondhand or, or, or cheaper, probably, you know, using the internet and what have you while you were in, in your dorm room or in your apartment. But I'm also curious, what were the other variables that allowed it to be so cost effective? Because I think there was one person who told me that it's like usually like 20 million to get to like the first clinical trial. Yeah, so uh, the, the, the question is, if drug development costs so much money, um, why have we been able to make so much progress without all that much money? Um, and the, the answer is, when we do move forward into clinical trials, which we're getting ready to do for several of our programs, at that point in time, we will need the 10, 20, 30, 40, $50 million raises uh, to, uh, to, to move into the clinic and to actually complete those trials. Um, that is a very expensive part, the most expensive part of the drug development process. Up until this point, we've really just been uh, doing preclinical research, so um, cell studies, biophysical studies, animal studies, these sorts of things. So in that respect, costs have been kept down somewhat artificially as compared to someone that's a, that's running a clinical stage company. Um, but within the context of running a preclinical shop, we are quite a bit less expensive in terms of our operating than most companies. That has to do with uh, we're located in a rural area, so I can buy a facility for the cost to rent such a facility in Silicon Valley or Boston. 
um, because cost of living in this area is so low, um, we can pay relatively small salaries compared to, a, again, a Boston or a Silicon Valley, and yet our employees can actually enjoy a higher quality of living, have bigger houses, bigger plots of land, nicer car, whatever, um, because it's so much cheaper here. So the, the, the combination of reduced expenses and then only focusing on preclinical research at this stage is why we've been able to get so far with the, uh, with the amount of funding that we've raised. So using uh, Lysoclear as an example of like the challenges that you've had to go through to develop like senescent type technology, and then what were some of the challenges that Lysoclear has gone through to get to where it is now? And how are they representative of the type of challenges that a lot of anti-aging type startups and researchers are going through right now as like the first part? Yeah, I think, uh, I think the, most challenging thing working in the aging space is that a lot of the people that are most excited about it don't really have the technical background to evaluate the technology. So uh, we kind of have a running joke that if your pitch deck includes the words machine learning algorithm, AI, or blockchain, it's basically impossible not to get funding for your anti-aging project. Whereas if you're a traditional uh, pharmaceutical discovery shop, um, it's much more difficult. So Lysoclear itself is a little bit complicated in terms of how the program works. Uh, there's junk that accumulates in the back of the eye that we believe drives the onset and progression of age-related macular degeneration, which is the leading cause of vision loss in people over the age of 50 or so. And through uh, well-established uh, mechanisms, we have an enzyme therapy that we can administer that will be taken up into the affected cells and clear out the junk uh, that accumulates in them. And we believe that that will um, stop, the, stop the disease and perhaps in some cases even reverse it. The mechanisms governing all of that uh, have been exploited widely by other clinical companies and are, are actually widely used in, uh, in various clinical applications. That's something that people that are familiar with the space are uh, very comfortable with, their concepts and mechanisms that they're very comfortable with. But when you move to software and tech uh, type investors that aren't familiar with those sorts of nuances, um, it can get very confusing uh, very quickly for, for some of them. Some of them are pretty sophisticated. Others uh, get very confused with that. And, and what we see is that there's a lot of startups uh, in the age space in particular, where if the pitch is something that is really easy to understand at a, um, you know, at an elevator pitch level, they get funded because it has to intuitively make sense to the investor. A lot of the more sophisticated and, in my opinion, elegant projects that I've, I, I've seen a lot of groups have these very elegant, excellent translational initiatives that they can't get funding for from, you know, the, the, the software and tech investors because, um, you know, it's it's too complicated. Uh, we ran into that with one of our other programs, uh, you know, and Toxerine, which was developing small molecules for cellular senescence. And we went through 
the, the basis of the technology uh, that we have is a technology that lets us make lots of proteins for drug screening. Um, and this is a really important nuance thing that most people don't care about. But if you've tried to do drug discovery, you appreciate the value. I went through probably 15 different VCs on the tech side that did not care at all about the foundational technology or what we had done with it and couldn't understand why this was a thing and didn't write any money. Um, we had one conversation with uh, a sophisticated group that understood these issues and how the technology would solve a very specific problem. And we ended up getting a term sheet for 3X, our ask. And they're like, of course, this makes sense. We completely understand it. So so, so there's very much a, a disconnect between what different companies are doing and the sorts of investors and, and how the investors play into that um, from a development perspective. And that's that's been uh, probably the, the, the biggest challenge for me is how do I communicate very, very dense, nuanceical uh, scientific topics to an audience that is uh, very intelligent but doesn't necessarily have um, expertise in that particular space? Uh, we find in you know in, in the pharmaceutical industry, we care about target validation. We care about if it's a biologic. We care a lot about manufacturing, um, whereas. You know, when I talk to uh, many uh, more like tech investors, they're wondering about market caps, and they're not, you know, they're they're not asking the questions that a life science VC would be asking about. You know, what is your strategy for clinical trials, and what what patient populations are you going to go after first, and and all of these nuances. So it's just understanding. Um, how to communicate about the different projects in a way that the take-home points are are you know effectively communicated, and so that they can you know so the ideas can be properly evaluated on their own merits. That's that's really the challenging part for me. Hmm. Uh, it reminds me of an interview I had with James Feld. He developed. He's like one of Forbes' thirty under thirty. He's out in the UK, but he he mentioned as well that there's like like maybe like twenty percent of VCs, like there's like, there's different types of VCs and how they ask their questions is how you discern whether or not they're the right ones for you. Because some of them are just not going to get, you know, they're just, um, they're not in the space and understand what's going on. But like, there's some that are like, like what you said, like, oh, you know, of course, this is great. You know, and then they did through X what your term is. So it's, 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 uh, it's interesting to hear that from another person who's gone through that as well. Um, so why did you, cause you're going, you're, you know, close to, getting your PhD specifically around what you're working on in LysoClear, which I feel like if you were to get a pilot's license at the same time, you'd kind of like, like do the trifecta, like running a, running a company, you know, going to, going to school for graduate, you know, advanced degree. Like all you need is like a pilot's license and learning Mandarin and you know, you, you got it all. <laughs> but, uh, so why'd you choose that to develop a PhD around? Um, well, that, that's kind of been the uh, the, the Maculated Generation program. Uh, LysoClear has really been the flagship uh, portfolio project of ICOR for you know most of its existence. Um, so that just happens to be the one that's most developed. It's furthest along. It's the one that I've worked on the most. So that's the one that I choose to that I chose to focus on for my uh, for my PhD thesis. Um, at this point, the other programs in the portfolio are sufficiently uh, advanced that any one of them could have, you know, I, I, I could have chose to focus on, but, um, 
for the purposes of academic credentialing, I'll say um, the 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 Lysto-Clear program. Um, makes a great deal of sense. There's also a lot of uh, more traditional academic work that went into that program um, in terms of target validation, mechanism mapping, and, and, and things like that with how, uh, with, with how the disease macular degeneration occurs. Um, so that allowed us to, uh, to put out some additional papers, which are helpful for, uh, for a PhD thesis. Mm-hmm. Like my grandmother had macular degeneration, or still has it, to some extent, but she had to like go to a different country to get some stem cells, I think, put in her eyes to, to like make them better. But this is like uh, an enzyme therapy, if I, if, I'm, if I wrote that down correctly. So I'm curious, like how would the end result, so I, you, you've been through the trials, everything works out. How would, uh, I have like macro generation, I go somewhere and I'm going to get the enzyme therapy. Like how would it actually look? Yeah, so the uh, the way that we think macular degeneration occurs is very analogous to atherosclerotic plaque. Um, in atherosclerosis, there's junk that accumulates in the blood vessels, but it's not until uh, some point in time that it becomes pathogenic. We have lesions, atherosclerotic plaque existing for, you know, many cases, uh, you know, years before it leads to stenosis or vessel rupture. And in the same way, we see cholesterol and other deposits accumulate in the back of the eye that eventually, uh, we believe, drive the progression of, of macular degeneration, but we think that there's a, a very nice treatment window where you can see that the disease is going to happen, and if you can administer a therapy that can clear the junk up, um, then then that could be highly effective, and that's kind of the uh, the model uh, that we're putting forward of how this, how this drug would work. So you go to your ophthalmologist, they see that there's a lot of junk accumulating in the back of your eye, and uh, you would um, receive the, uh, the enzyme therapy with the idea that it would break down the, the junk and prevent any loss of function. Now, the, the stem cell angle that, uh, that you described is also very interesting because uh, one of the things that we don't really know anything about is if we were to remove all of the junk in someone who has already had a significant amount of vision loss, is there enough regenerative potential there for the eye to uh, regenerate itself, or is that vision loss going to be permanent? And that's where I think the stem cell therapies are really, really exciting. Um, the way that macular degeneration is being tested in the clinic with stem cells is the cells that die as a result of this junk accumulation um, scientists are able to make out of pluripotent stem cells and uh, and graft into the back of the eye to replace the uh, the dying or, or dead um, cells. The, the cell type is called the retinal pigmented epithelial cells. Um, so that's a very uh, a, a very promising approach, in my opinion, um, because it has the ability to reverse existing pathology, though cell therapies are going to be much more expensive. You run into uh, not just manufacturing issues, but also concerns about uh, graft rejection where the immune system could uh, could recognize the cells and kick them out. So you see that a lot of these patients are on immunosuppressants, for example, uh, presumably for life. So as with any treatment modality, there's there's pros and cons with different approaches. And we're hoping that, you know, getting rid of this this junk that accumulates during kind of that sweet spot where the junk is there, but it hasn't yet caused damage um, is going to be a very promising approach. Hmm. End result, would it still be like an injection type thing to get the enzyme like in the eye? 
Because I know you were like working on another uh, one where you could like eat it. So I'm just curious, like how does it? Yeah. Yeah. So the uh, the uh, getting your drug to the target location and specifically to the target location um, is a uh, is a very big issue for many different types of uh, of, of, of therapeutics. Um, we actually quite like the fact that we could just administer this enzyme as an injection into the eye, which people get queasy about eyes, but it's a, uh, a very low-risk procedure. It's how the disease is managed currently uh, with monoclonal antibodies against the uh, VEGF pathway. And the eye kind of acts as a, a natural reservoir of the drug reagent uh, of the, uh, the, the pharmaceutical uh, uh, agent, if you will, um, and it holds it there uh, and, and and allows it to be taken up by the uh, by the target cells, and in that way you avoid um, off-target effects. You can get by with far lower doses of the uh, of the product because it's just being put there. It doesn't have to be administered, you know, systemically through the entire body. Um, so, in terms of uh, the way we would treat it, we would expect it to be an injection just like the disease is currently treated. And that was Dr. Moody with iCore Therapeutics. He's the CEO. He started it in his college dorm room, which is amazing. Check out the website, iCoreTherapeutics.com. Dr. Moody on LinkedIn. Follow. He's always giving talks. He's always doing a lot of fantastic research. This was a small, tiny episode capturing the thinnest, thinnest amount of who he is and how amazing he is as a person what he's developing and how passionate he is so I hope you got a little sense of that and you have the fire to go learn more and check out all of his work and his links i'll put some in the show notes and give you some of the curated ones that i like in particular don't forget to subscribe and leave a review we can be found on twitter at lowell was here facebook and on the website learningwithlowell.com also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every monday new episodes every tuesday and new blog posts around every thursday remember to share and tell your friends please and thank you